0: Thanks for listening to Worship Local. This is our non podcast where we invite you into the long winded, ever deepening, sometimes winding conversation of Frontier Church, where we exist for the glory of Jesus and the joy of Des Moines. Today's episode is about the doctrine of eternal security, otherwise known as the perseverance of the saints. Can I lose my salvation? How should I think about those who have walked away from Christianity? These questions matter. And we want to answer them in today's episode. So whether you live in Des Moines or elsewhere, we hope this podcast helps you worship local. Uh,
1: My name is Cole, and I am a Reformed pastor who believes in the doctrine of eternal security. And I'm joined by... I am Andrew.
0: I am one of the pastors at Frontier Church who has... Christian circles would say, "Echo what Cole has just said." <laughs> I just want to echo I what echoed, he echoed. Bro, Lord, I echo what my brother just said and prayed.
1: <laughs> so, we're talking about eternal security today because that was a, a big emphasis of the sermon on Sunday. This this comes explicitly from from John in First John uh, chapter two, where he says, "Hey, I want you guys to know that you know." jesus or the way that john phrases it exactly in chapter 2 verse 3 is by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments so in, in in this in this thought unit of john's what john wants to do is he wants to provide assurance he wants those who know jesus to have assurance of their salvation and he wants those who are posers, who who don't actually know jesus to have assurance that they don't have salvation So that's why we want to talk about assurance of salvation, eternal security, perseverance of the saints, whatever whatever phrase that you want to use to describe it. That's what we're talking about today. But bro, let's start. Before we start getting into the conversation, let's just have a moment of clarity for our church. How would you define perseverance of the saints or eternal security? I would define it as God has
0: saved you. Your salvation is not based on anything that you have done or things that you have not done your salvation is based on what Christ has done and the covenant that God has with Christ and with his people and so if that is true then it also has to be true that there's nothing that I can do or not do that would cause me to lose my salvation because I don't it's it's not uh it's not a trinket that I carry around in my pocket that I could lose that that's not salvation
1: yeah yeah it's not like your car keys right or even close to your car keys yeah <laughs> I think for me, the way I define it is I'd really like to go back to Paul in Romans eight twenty eight through 30, when, uh, when he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Mm -hmm. So to use Paul's language, I would say that perseverance of the saints is the certainty that those whom God foreknew will be glorified.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Would you agree with that? Yeah,
0: I would agree with that. I mean, I think there's so many uh, Paul uh, talks in several different places about eternal security and the preservation uh, and perseverance of the believers faith and the believers salvation you know think i think it's in philippians where he says uh he, he talks and he's saying god will continue the work that he's already begun in you he will finish it he oh. is he's the author and he's the perfecter of your salvation
1: yeah i love yeah it's a, it's really definitive language that paul uses he says you reference referencing Philippians, right? I think that was, I think it's Philippians. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Mm. Isn't that, I mean, that's like really strong language. I'm sure of this. Yeah, I'm certain. Wouldn't you want Paul to be your pastor? Oh,
0: dude, yeah.
1: Like in hard times where you're struggling with indwelling sin and you're struggling with doubt to have Paul sit across from you and say, hey, I'm sure of this. God's going to finish what he started in you.
0: Yeah, because... It, I think some, we've talked about this in the past couple of episodes. That sometimes we have this perception that uh, Paul is writing in a vacuum, or the New Testament authors are writing in a vacuum. So you have to assume that if uh, he's saying these things, it's because maybe there are people who are who are uncertain of their salvation, or they're discouraged by their the the uh, progress of their sanctification, or there's there's heretics telling them that they can lose their salvation. So he's right. not he's he's applying pastoral comfort and pastoral care in, in these statements.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. Is that is that part of why you're passionate about the doctrine of eternal security? Definitely. Um, growing up
0: in, in certain church circles where it's never explicitly said that you can lose your salvation, but sometimes the implications of the preaching or the teaching uh, will lead you to a place where you would think that I... I'm going to lose my salvation. I've got to rededicate my life to Christ every time I've like flagrantly sinned or Mm, I've mm -hmm. got to, you know, ask, ask God to, you know, save me again um, because I can't sleep and I've been thinking bad thoughts. Um, And that just, that does not create well-rounded human beings or well-rounded Christians. Um, And so the, the doctrine of eternal security and the perseverance of the saints is really comforting to me to know that. God is more committed to my salvation than I am.
1: So do you think do you think that bad theology about this particular issue can actually like exacerbate and produce mental illness within the church? I think
0: they they definitely work in unison. Um uh, okay. people that I know who have struggled with um with believing that they've lost their salvation or they believe in these biblical truths, but they don't believe that they pertain to them. Um, I, I think that it can cause mental illness and then it is brought, those doubts are brought out of mental illness. Like one of my uh, favorite hymn writers, William Cooper, um, mm-hmm. who wrote hymns with John Newton, who wrote some of the, we sing um, at least one of the hymns that uh, William Cooper wrote. Um, but he believed at certain times of his life when you get these, Severe bouts of depression, like every ten years, uh, that he was reprobate, that hmm. that he was not saved. But he's writing these beautiful hymns about how good God's grace and mercy and kindness is. Jeez, but he, dude. But he didn't believe it pertained to him. So Jeez. that man was was definitely sick and um, had whatever mental issues. But it caused him to believe yeah. that God was a loving God, but not to him. Wow. That's it. So so fascinating for me to, to think about I've never been in a, a place like that um, but I, I know people who have been in places like that
1: do you think do you think most of our church members well do you think some of our church members are in that spot do you think do you think the average frontier church member struggles with that um, I, I don't know if
0: to that degree um, I think a lot of times when people get in a spot like that they they don't want to talk about it because they're They're ashamed of how they feel or they're ashamed of how they're thinking. So I think the number of people who struggle with that in our church, I would be surprised by just because I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think every believer at some point or another in their life, um, they ask themselves, am I really a Christian? do I really believe this or does God really love me? I think every human, I think every Christian struggles with that. And for some people it's more repetitive than others, but I think everyone has asked themselves that question at one point in time or another.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think one of the reasons why I'm really passionate about the doctrine of eternal security is because dementia is something that runs in my wife's family. Mm -hmm. And so if you've ever seen somebody near the end of their their journey, at the end of their life with dementia, um, I mean, it really, like their life really does spiral so far out of control that not only can they not remember um, certain Bible verses, and not only can they not remember um, big doctrinal things, but if you have dementia towards the end of your life, you, you can't even remember your own name sometimes, mm. man. And um, when, when, you, when the person that you love the most in the world when when, you, when you're pretty sure that her life is probably gonna have that in it at the end of it um it makes you rethink your ability to keep yourself in salvation mm-hmm. like it really makes you like scrap and claw and fight to depend on god to keep people in their salvation mm-hmm. and so if 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 my final if if my final salvation is totally dependent upon my mental clarity and sharpness to keep myself in salvation, then like there's no doubt that I'm going to lose it, man. Yeah. But like if it's dependent upon God's commitment to Jesus Christ and his commitment to persevere his saints, then all of a sudden like I can I can look at the end of my life and I can think, you know, like no matter how bad it gets for me or no matter how to, how bad it gets for Chloe, like we worship a God who will persevere us to the very end. And that's so 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 comforting.
0: Yeah, it definitely is. I mean you if if we could lose our salvation, then why did God go through the great lengths at which he did to save us? Right? In the fullness of time, at the mm. right moment in history, God sent Jesus, God incarnate, to enter into the world to subject to subject himself to suffering and death and death on a cross. And he died and he descended into the place of the dead and he was resurrected brought back out of the place of the dead and was ascended and is seated at the right hand of the father why in the world would he go through all of that if he would if we could lose our salvation yeah why would he do that so right. the believer came with confidence and comfort at their draw their last breath say i am loved by jesus i am kept by the holy spirit and i belong to god the father you can say that with 100 percent confidence
1: Yeah, totally, man. And I also think about the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think about it like a medication. Mm -hmm. Like, is the blood of Jesus the type of medication that's applied to a person's life that is effective for a short time, but then you can actually, like, develop tolerance towards it? Mm -hmm. And so over time, the, the medication becomes less and less and less effective, and you need to find something else. Like, Is the blood of Jesus Christ something that's effective for somebody on day one, but actually can lose its potency and effectiveness over the course of time? You know what I mean? Yeah, Yeah. What does that say about the effectiveness of the sacrifice of Jesus if it's something that can be effective one day and then ineffective another day?
0: Mm -hmm. He was the perfect sacrifice once and for all. We don't have to wait for the Day of Atonement every every year for us to be purged and cleansed new, only to have to wait for the next Day of Atonement. There was the Day of Atonement for the Christian, and that was on the cross. That's right. Yeah, the blood of Jesus has never lost its potency for the believer.
1: Yeah, that's right. Okay. So I'm I'm that's sweet. It's sweet to hear why we're both passionate about it. Let's aim for a little bit more clarity though, dude. Let's I think that there are I want to explore four interrelated pieces of eternal security that all belong together that if you take one out like the whole Jenga tower falls. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And so giving our people something beyond just the definition of eternal security. But I want to kind of open up the the car hood and show exactly how the engine works and how the oil works and what the interrelated pieces are. So I've got four. You can add to it if you want. But the four pieces are, number one, God's elect cannot be lost. Mm. Number two, God ordains the means and the ends of salvation. Number three, we should be zealous to confirm our salvation. And number four, perseverance is a community project. So let's start with number 1, man. God's elect cannot be lost. My work and text for this is the one that I already read, but I'll read it again. This is Romans 8:29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, Reformed theologians look at verses 29 through 30 as as the golden chain of salvation. Mm-hmm. All of the links are certain. All of the links result in the following link. So, dude, talk a little bit about that. God's elect cannot be lost. What comes to mind when you think about that text?
0: Oh, man. So this is one of my favorite passages of, of Scripture because it is so complex yet simple in how Paul constructs this. He, he's showing them that, yeah, all these pieces, are they're interrelated. One thing causes the next, and the next causes the the next, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so w- one of the things that I really hone in um, in this passage is that being conformed into the image of his Son.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: So we are God's salvation is not just to... Is not just to get us out of hell, but it's to give us eternal life and to conform us into the image of Jesus. All right. So, so if Jesus is the perfect human, if he's the new Adam, if he's the truer and better Adam, um, that's a pretty good deal, right? Adam messed up and jacked the stuff up, and Mm -hmm. so if if Jesus is the perfect human, then he gets this perfect um, experience, perfect. Uh, communion with God the Father, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if I'm being conformed, this, this active event of being conformed into the image of Jesus, then that means... And new creation, I get direct access to the presence of God, and I and I do now, mm-hmm. right? This the first sermon we you preached, and this first John series was eternal life is here and now. It's not something That's that we're, we're waiting for. It's something yeah. we have access to right now.
1: The future has broken into the present.
0: Yes. So I'm I, believers are brought into this love and this communion that God the Father has for the Son. We get to commune with the Triune God: right. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Um, and so if I'm brought into that. And it's more secure. And new creation is all is all of God's earthly home, not just one little, not just a garden, as as we see in Genesis. Um, but if it's all his his earthly home, and I see his see his face, I, I hear Jesus' voice, um, and I get to commune with him directly all the time. There's nowhere I can go that that the light of Christ doesn't shine on. Um, then that must mean that what he's doing right now is securing me. And preparing me for that day, um, so if God is committed to conforming me into into Jesus' image, He's not going to give up on that process.
1: So, can we let's do a little theology, man? How how would you distinguish the doctrine of foreknowledge from predestination? Because that's you know, Paul seems to be making a distinction there. He says, "Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of of Jesus." Um, a lot of times, in my mind, foreknowledge and predestination are two ways of saying the same thing. Uh-huh. But it seems like Paul sees them as two separate disciplines or two separate doctrines.
0: Yeah, and this is where you get the classic Calvinist Arminian divide here yep. of foreknowledge and and predestination. Yeah, it's it, in our English uh, syntax. It's in vocabulary. It's really easy for us to yeah conflate the two of those. Right. Um, I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah, it's really easy. Um, but, yeah, sorry, I'm reading out of the Lexham English Bible, and so the the uh, wording is a little different here. Hey,
1: did you get the Septuagint yet? I just- no, I haven't got that. Okay, I want to get, get a copy of that right. too. Okay, sorry. That'll be
0: fine. No, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to pull this up. I heard um, it's a really good translation. Yeah. Um, so, and we know all things that work together for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Um, so this foreknowledge, this to know in advance or to choose beforehand, um, uh, like the LEB right here says um, in their notes. Um, Paul is drawing on Old Testament language that describes Yahweh's choice of Israel as his covenant people. In Genesis eighteen nineteen, Yahweh uses the Hebrew word for know to indicate his choice um, of Abraham. However, the theological concept of uh, divine knowledge is subject to various interpretations and we've already hit on that. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um gosh, I'm trying to get the, the gears in my mind to work right here. I've, I've heard yeah. one
1: I've heard a couple theologians, all reformed of course, um, who who define foreknowledge as God's for loving of his people. Okay. Or his his choice to place his love and his affection on people before time. And then predestination is the specific ordering of the steps of those people yeah. that he he loved? Is that is that how you would define it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It?
0: sorry, yeah. Thanks, you teed me up there finally to know. <laughs> well, so the, the Hebrew yeah. word of of no is is not just like I intellectually know this, but I intimately know. I I have this relationship. So before Yeah, it can't.
1: The, it can't because then God would foreknow everybody. Right. And, and this phrase would be meaningless because God foreknows everything. But the assumption here is that foreknowledge is something that's unique to believers and uh-huh. not the rest of the world. So yeah. it's got to mean something more than just intelligence. Yeah, he
0: doesn't just look through the corridors of future history and say, okay, these people are going to choose me, so I will predestine them. I'll call right. them. I'll elect them. But it's this this Somehow he does this, where he knows his people. He's the shepherd, and he knows his sheep. Um, so he has this intimate, before the foundations of the the world, uh, relationship with his people, and so he goes about the process of predestining right. them and he's calling not, them.
1: He's not responding to reality. He's he's generating reality. Exactly. Yeah. Is that is that foreknowledge? Um, and, and you said that that comes from like the the Hebrew of knowledge that was used in Genesis. Does that have to do with like Adam knowing Eve?
0: I, I would think so.
1: You know, because yeah. like I, I've heard theologians say that too. Like, yeah. There's a, there's a type of knowing that's just information. But the type of knowing that's talked about in Genesis is how Adam knew Eve and that produced new life uh-huh. and so in that same way God foreknows us and this is the type of knowledge that brings about new birth just like in Adam and Eve
0: yeah and even if you want to look at old other Old Testament passages about God's foreknowledge um, that's not the same trajectory that Paul is tracking on here of God has he has foreknowledge of events that will take place that's not the same sort of foreknowledge that that he is talking about here. So the the words that Paul is using is to is to communicate God's um, intimate knowledge of of um, the Old Testament believers of His elect people. Mm-hmm. Um, so so you can't even if you want to make the argument with foreknowledge, you can't even really make that here with the way that Paul has structured this.
1: Right. And so that's really like why. That's, that's why God's elect cannot be lost, mm-hmm. is because God foreknew them. And in his foreknowledge of them, he's predestined them to be conformed to the image of Jesus so that we persevere into future glorification in God. Uh-huh. Something I feel like we don't usually get about, and we were talking about this before we hit record on the podcast, something I don't feel like we usually get about eternal security. And the fact that God's elect cannot be lost is the fact that our salvation is ultimately rooted not in God's covenant with us, but in what Reformed theologians call the eternal covenant. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea that's rooted in Scripture that the first covenant that was ever made was not a covenant between the Creator and creation. It was a covenant between God the Father and God the Son, where God the Father looked upon God the Son and said, I make, I'm make. i making a promise to you. I want your name to be glorified in all of creation. And so I am promising to you a people who will make you look great. And it's, it's that promise of God the Father to God the Son, which is why John can say no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm thinking about uh, Ephesians um, where Paul has this beautiful – long run on prayer and doxology um to to god for the way that he has saved his people and it's not because of uh in verse 7 you know he says in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of whose grace his grace that right. He caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, that He purposed in Him for the administration of the fullness of time. So this is all going on before the foundation of of the the world. We We're, we weren't there before the foundation of the world. That's right. So who is God? Who is God the Father working this out with? Who's who does He have a covenant with to unfold His plan in the in the fullness of time? It's with Jesus. It's with right. the Holy Spirit. There's this covenant that is that is an eternal covenant that man has had no part in. Um, Which to me, that that ties in really well with foreknowledge is that God, the father and God, the son and God, the spirit they're they're in this perfect communion with one another. They have this perfect love and out of the overflow of that love and harmony and peace that they have with one another create mankind. Mm -hmm. And it's not based on, Um, you know, the the covenants that we see in the Old Testament with the patriarchs. um, He made these unique covenants with them, but it was ultimately to reflect the covenant that they had already made within themselves.
1: Right. An inner Trinitarian covenant. Yeah. Dude, this is big. Okay, so this lends itself really nicely. Let's transition to the second interrelated piece of eternal security. The first one is God's elect cannot be lost, but this... This is designed to work hand-in-hand with this second interrelated piece, which is God ordains the means and the ends, which is our way of saying, well, if God has just ordained that I'll be saved in the very end, then the way that I live my life doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Hold on a second. God doesn't just ordain the end. He also ordains the means by which the ends are accomplished. So here's a working text for us to kind of work with. This is 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, God, he who calls you as faithful, he will surely do it. So Paul says, hey, be sanctified, your whole spirit, soul, and body, keep it blameless for Jesus. And then he says, God's going to be the one who surely does it. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's circle back to that question: Um, If God has just like, if God has ordained that I'm going to be eternally secure and that I have eternal life, does it matter the way that I live my life?
0: Yeah. So there's a funny quote from um, from Luther. Oh, let's go. That uh, he was, you know, talking about this, uh, the grace of God and the eternal security of the believer, and some uh, people would tell him and accuse him that. his the way that he was preaching was going to lead to um, complacency, and that people were going to um, we going to distort uh, the gospel. And Luther says, "Okay, let them." <laughs> <He>
1: said, <laughs> this, Dude, that's so gangster. I like that.
0: This truth is so good um, that that even if you distort it, it doesn't change the reality of the fact that we preach. Grace alone, faith alone. We, we preach that that salvation is is not something that we accomplish by our acts, but it is accomplished by grace and by faith. Right, and, and therefore we are secure because that's the the object of our our salvation is centered around God, not centered around man. Um, so if people want to distort that, let them distort it, but it doesn't change the inherent truth of the believer is secure in Christ. And right. So, right. So, yeah, it's people will say, and I've heard, I remember having conversations with, I can't remember who wrote this book. I mean,
1: that's insane, though. Like, well, aren't you afraid that people are going to distort the truth? Of course I am. But what's the alternative? Hide the truth? Uh
0: Uh-huh. I remember reading, I can't remember who read this book, but I was in high school reading this book, and it was was about free grace, and uh, I remember talking with... With my parents about, you know, this, what I was reading, and I think it was a Tolian Chavigian book or something. Um, oh, yeah, like can, One Way Love? Yeah, it wasn't that one. I can't remember what it was. Ah, yeah. But, um, no, it was a podcast, and he was it was a sermon, uh, one of his sermons. And we were listening to the sermon in a car ride, and my, my parents were like, I don't know if I fully get what he's saying. Like, if that's true, then, then um, what prevents you from continuing to sin? And I'm like, well, Paul addresses this. Do we sin that so that grace may abound? By no means do we do this, right? right? So so this eternal security that I have, it ought to compel me to do good, to mm-hmm. live righteously, to pursue holiness, to thank God for what he's doing. Because the promise of this text in, in Thessalonians is that it's not just us that's at work in our salvi- our sanctification. Right. It's it's God. It's Jesus. They are working this out in us. Um. And so that's that's really important um, to, to do. So, you know, the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely and may your spirit and soul and body be kept complete, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who called you as faithful. He will also do this. Um, so that's great comfort in me. So if, if God has um, made me his possession, a member of his family, it's his responsibility to as well as my responsibility to to live accordingly in his family. He's going to instruct me. He is going to work out the way that I need to mature and the way that I need to grow, and I'm called to follow him. I'm called to follow his guidance. So That's what sanctification is. So the Spirit is working in us, is renewing our mind, is, is reordering our the works of our hands and the, the words that come out of our mouth so that we reflect the character of Jesus. Um, now that you think back at... Uh, in the garden of Eden, we have the tree of life and we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And one theologian I I read talks about how it's, you know, Adam and Eve are God's children and God has a way for them to properly grow and mature and to become his, and to be his imagers. Adam and Eve tried to subvert that process of God making them grow into matureness and to grow into the knowledge that he had for them. So they subverted that. They tried to say, we'll go about it our own way. Um, but with the believer, because of Jesus and his perfect once and for all sacrifice, we have access to the tree of life constantly because of Jesus. He is our tree of life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so He, if he's our tree of life, then we will surely not see eternal death. We get eternal life right here, right now, and a new creation. Um, so so that's... And if you do come become complacent, you know that you've become complacent and you're not taking these things accurately. And the church community, and we'll hit on this later, but is there to encourage you and to rebuke you and to exhort you to pursue holiness. Um, but at the end of the day, because God has is the author of your salvation, he's also going to perfect your salvation. And so his spirit is at work in you and he's calling you to to also work out your salvation.
1: I like that metaphor too, about God, about God being the author of, us, of our salvation. Um, you know, in when we, when we think about God ordaining the means and the ends, that kind of means that God didn't just write the last chapter of your salvation. He wrote every chapter of your salvation. Mm-hmm. Which is what, is what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, hey, be sanctified, keep yourself pure, and God's going to do that. Mm-hmm. God's going to be the one who does all of those things. God is going to produce the fruit within you that will lead to your eternal security. Right? Like, Um, here's the way that Piper phrases it. This is a little ridiculous, but whatever, I'm going to read it still. He says, (laughs) he says, suppose God has predestined that a nail be in a two by four with its head flush with the surface on the board. It is certain that this will happen. God is God and he has planned it. Does that mean that God is indifferent to hammers? No, of course not. In fact, God has also ordained that the way the nail will get into the board is by being struck with a hammer. So, in other words, God doesn't just predestine that we'll experience heaven at the end of our death. He'll also predestine that we experience a life that has the general trajectory of delighting in God, loving God, enjoying God, wanting to be like God, and wanting to obey His commandments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll have bad seasons, but that's why I say the general pattern of our life will will have fruit like that. Yes. and
0: you. Uh... I'm not a potter, so I'm not an expert on this, Uh, so I may say some things that are incorrect. But if you think about the biblical language of God being the potter and we are the clay, his hands are perfectly around us at all times. He's not going to let us fling off that little spinning thing that they make pots off of. but he, he's forming us and yeah, he's shaping yeah. us. We are in his hands. If we are his people, we are in his hands and he's not going to take his hands off of us and let us fly onto the wall. Uh, but he's shaping us into the, the vessel that he wants us to be. He's committed totally. to it.
1: Yes. Yeah, totally. And, and like you said earlier, like with that Luther quote, if I tell somebody, Hey, if, if God has elected you, then he will glorify you. Mm-hmm. There's a chance that people might pervert that. Um, but is it, is it true? I guess that's what I'm concerned about. Yeah. And I'm tr- I was trying to think about a, a good analogy of that when you were talking about that. And I thought about marriage. Like, I imagine myself telling Chloe, hey, babe, we're in this together to the end. Like, there's nothing that you can do that won't make me love you. There's no mistake that will make me not love you. Like, I'm gonna lo- like we're going to make it to the end. I imagine somebody tapping me on the shoulder and saying, hey, don't say that, Cole. Mm-hmm. She might pervert that. She might, she might actually use that as, as an excuse to go out and, and meet other dudes because you said that no matter what, you're going to stick with her. It's like, no, my my promises to her that there's nothing she can do that ever that would make me forsake her or leave her doesn't produce in her the desire to experience other dudes. Mm-hmm. It produces a greater love in her for me. And so when God says, hey, nothing you can do, I'll, always, I'll never leave you or forsake you. If I've elected you, I'm going to call you and justify you and I'm going to glorify you does not bring about the effect in me. Oh, I should go worship other gods. Mm-hmm. This is not the result of it. Yeah and God uses
0: the language of Israel as the unfaithful wife but he still pursues still pursues the unfaithful wife and yeah. because he is committed to that so even when we sin even when we don't trust God in the situations in our life he is still actively pursuing us and actively bringing us into relationship with him and community with him so he's not going to he's not going to be complacent even though if we get to a point of complacency he is never complacent in his zeal for us that's right so that ought to motivate, and that does motivate right. us to be zealous for him.
1: And this works perfectly with the third piece of uh, of eternal security. So that second piece we we're just talking about is the truth that God ordains the means and the ends, but it works perfectly with piece number three. We should be zealous to confirm our salvation. This comes through really clearly in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Confirm it. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So if God saved us, Mm -hmm. then we become really eager to prove that we've been saved, right? Right.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I also think of Ephesians where he has saved us and he's prepared good works for us that we would walk in them perfect yeah so those those work these two those two texts work really well hand in hand um because yeah that this is our motivation like so he starting in verse eight says for if these things are yours he talks about these qualities of the christian the marks of a true christian and are increasing this does not make you useless or unproductive in the knowledge of our lord jesus christ for the one for whom these things are not Present in is blind, which is we're going we've been talking about in First John, uh, but being nearsighted, mm-hmm. having forgotten the cleansing of his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be zealous even more to make your calling and election sh- secure. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entrance into the into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly supplied to you. So he's not saying do this and you'll get this. He's saying you have this, so do these things, and if you do these things, this will happen. Um, so it's this, you know, the the mystery of God's will and our will working in unison, um, which is really hard to think about. Because if you take, if you pluck a verse out of this um, this passage um, in first Peter, in Second Peter, it's going to lead you to believe that oh, my salvation is based on my works, but that's not the order of events here. It's You've been right, given salvation, right. and here are the marks of a true Christian. And if you do these things, you're when you're doing this, you're you're working out your your salvation. You are acknowledging the fact of this this reality with the way that you, with the way that you live. So it's just like um, every culture has certain values, and those values ought will will bring down um, into the culture. Uh, values, whenever you implement them, reflect the stated culture that your life or your organization or your church exists for. There are values and ethics of God's kingdom. And so when we live out those values, we are creating culture and that culture of the Christians. So um, I think that's really, it's really easy to, I don't know, treat that carelessly. But it's really, really important to know that I don't live a certain way so that God saves me. God saves me so I can live a certain way.
1: Yeah, so like what is, what is, the at a very practical level, what is the function of good works in the life of the believer? Very simply, the the function of good works in the life of the believer is not to regenerate, it's to validate. That makes all the difference in the world. Because this this fundamentally changes the way that we answer the question, why should we obey God? Right? Because like, hey, if we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, then why even obey him? Mm-hmm. I have an answer for that because it's freaking delightful (laughs) because I love God. And it's a freaking joy to deny myself. Mm -hmm. It is a joy to say no to sin and to say yes to Jesus. It's a joy to say yes to Jesus and to say no to sin. Right? I, like, I don't obey Jesus because I feel like I'm going to earn good standing before him. That's mm-hmm. not the function of good works in my life. The function of good works is that it's a delicious cake. Mm-hmm. And if you tell me that it's a delicious cake, I'm going to take a bite out of it, not say, well, what's the point of eating the cake?
0: <laughs> you know what uh, I mean? Like, no, totally.
1: God is a delight. Yeah. I love him.
0: He's, yes, he's given us commandments, but those commandments are given to us so that we experience life as he has intended us to experience it. And that's experiencing him as we are supposed to experience him. So you think of you know loving God and loving people, those are the two greatest commands. Okay, so if I'm supposed to do those, then that then I must be living life in the way that God intended me to do so. And that leads to joy. And that is joy. Yeah. Um, rather than trying to go about things my own way and hating my hating the church members and hating Christians and uh, not really caring about my relationship with the Lord, that just leads to a life of misery. Right, yeah, totally. So so if I have been saved, I, God's get brought me into this covenant with, with him, then I act in the way that he has saved me to do. So, yeah, it's, that's, it's a convicting passage to read. Yeah. Because that, it's like, okay, this is the reality, so I need to live out this reality. If the members of our local church family are actually my brothers and sisters, then I ought to love them. As they are my brothers and sisters, because they they actually are, and so if God is my Father, He saved me and brought me into His family, then I approach Him a certain way. And if I'm afraid of Him or if I've projected some sort of earthly relationship upon Him, um, then I'm I, I, things are going to be disconnected. Um, yeah. So, so passages like this are are convicting, but they're also really really helpful. Peter here is saying, "Hey, this is what you've been given." work this this thing that you've been given out with, with fear
1: and with trembling because it produces joy. Yeah. Like, don't you want to – you love your salvation. Don't you want to see expressions of it? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it make you excited? Shouldn't you be zealous? Shouldn't you be diligent to see these little manifestations and confirmations of your election? Yeah. And when you see obedience that way, then that means that when you look – at all the laws throughout the scriptures and when you look at all the different commandments throughout scriptures that means that all of those hundreds of various commandments throughout the scriptures are all variations of one single commandment take a bite of the cake mm-hmm. they're all variations of this is for your joy man mm-hmm. forgive your enemies yes. it's going to be it's going to hurt yeah. it's going to be painful it's going to cost you why should you do it take a bite of the cake mm-hmm. Because God is delightful. Yeah. They're all expressions of joy in Jesus. (sighs)
0: Yeah, man. I think about this in terms of allegiance and affection or belief and loyalty. Um, So I I believe that this is the case. And so I show my belief with my loyalty to Jesus. Right. I believe and I know that I'm married to Tracy. I wear this, I wear a, a wedding ring to remind me of this, but I have to act in a certain way to enjoy her, to enjoy our marriage, to show, to prove that I don't just wear a ring, but I actually do the thing, right? That I actually love her and talk with her and serve her and protect her. Because if I'm not doing that, then, then what's the point of me, like, co- covenanting with her and committing my life to her? That's what Peter's saying here. Yeah. You, be- you have believed this. This has been given to you. Now show your belief. Show your loyalty to Jesus with the right. way that you live your life, because it leads to joy.
1: He's saying, to use your language, he's saying you should be zealous to put your wedding ring on every day,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? To show that you're loyal yep. to Yahweh, to show that you desire him. Yeah,
0: because he hasn't taken his off.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> right, dude. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about the fourth piece of Perseverance of the Saints then. Um, piece number four is Perseverance is a community project. Or like a different way of phrasing it is Perseverance happens by God's power through the local church this is such a cool phrase from paul to timothy this is our working text for this piece in second timothy chapter 2 verse 10 paul says this he says therefore i endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in christ jesus with eternal glory what is going on there if, if God is really going to glorify those whom he has foreknown, then we can just put our feet up, right? Yeah, well, no, totally. Paul, Paul's, saying, <laughs> Paul's saying, no, I'll endure suffering and hardship and slander. I'll endure everything for the sake of the elect. What's going on here? I think this
0: is evidence of another means of God persevering our faith. Um, it's that he's given us this great blessing in church, in the church community and the family of God, um, which is why I'm so passionate about talking about the church as a family. Yeah. Um, And the reason why I think this is really helpful to wrap our minds around is because I have in pastoral ministry, um, had conversations with people who were doubting their salvation. And, and I learned from a pastor a a long time ago when people tell him that, um, whether they were a college student or an older person or a teenager, um, he would ask them the first question he would ask them when he would say that to them is, Are you actively engaged in a local church?
1: Mm, okay,
0: and um, I like it, that most often the answer was no. And so for him, it was, If you truly have have said that I'm following Jesus, you've confessed the name of Jesus as your only way, um to receive salvation is by by following jesus and his kindness and his mercy and his grace if you if you truly believe that and you're you're not engaged in a local church it's gonna be hard to actualize that there's not gonna be people affirming your salvation there's not gonna be people who are who are living and and doing what paul is saying suffering and enduring great things for the elect and so so thinking of it as a Uh, I I, I care much as much about, I should care as much about your um, sanctification and your salvation and your endurance, Cole, as as I care about my own. Right. Because we're we're all a part of the same body of Christ. So the hand has to care about the foot, the ears care about the nose. Um, We are are called to to care about one another. He endures, Paul says, he endures everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And then he goes on to say, the saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Um, so, you know, it's just, a for me, it's another level of, Salvation is not hinged upon myself, right we It belongs to God. It's, his, our salvation is His possession. We are His possession and He's put us in the context of community. So it's not something that you are to work out in isolation. Which that first Peter uh, that second Peter text that we just looked at, he's not writing to just a singular individual. He's writing to a collection of churches. Mm-hmm. So when he, he's using, he's commanding all of them to, to do things, and they're to do it together side by side because God has not called them into a life of isolation, but into community, because he is community.
1: Yeah, that's right. Or I like the way that Jude phrases it. Um, this is Jude, verses 22 through 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Mm. It's a community project, man. Yeah. You're, you're going to do some dumb things in your life. I'm going to do some dumb things in my life. The way that God wants to persevere us, is when we put our feet to the flames of the fire, he wants us to snatch one another out of the fire.
0: Mm-hmm. Ah dude, that's good. It's so beautiful to think about how God has arranged these things. Yeah. Um, that that gives me motivation as a pastor, that gives me motivation as a community group member, that gives me motivation as as a as a church member to care about the people. Yes, care about their tangible practical needs, but I also need to care about their salvation. I'm mm. called I'm called to do that. And that doesn't just mean, you know, kicking wolves out of the church, but that means having, you know, late night conversations with people or having early morning conversations with people who are struggling with whatever sin that you want to want to throw out there. I, we're addressing as pastors we're addressing these sins because we want to keep them from drifting away. We're encouraging the the lonely because we want to keep them from drifting away, from falling into the fire. We're we're actively snatching people out of the fire. And that's what not just what pastors have been called to do, but Christians have been called to do for one another.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think that lends itself nicely to uh, w- when we were thinking about structuring this podcast, we kind of wanted to start out with, hey, why do you love this doctrine? And what do you find comforting and amazing about this doctrine? And we wanted to end the podcast with, A just a real authentic question that a lot of people struggle with when they hear about this doctrine. And what we're talking about right now lends itself really nicely to it. So let's just answer this one question the best that we can. How how do I love people who seem to have walked away from the church? Mm -hmm. Or who seem to have been claimed, you know, they claim to be a Christian and then they've walked away from Christianity. How how do we love people like that?
0: Yeah, this is a a question that hits home for me personally um i know it hits home for a lot of a lot of people in our church personally um because you if so what we've just walked through those four points that we just walked through if they are all true then that means that that you can't lose your salvation because it's not yours um then what, how do I compartmentalize these people who depart from the faith or who it looks like they've departed from the faith? Like even people who have said they have rejected Jesus, how do I, how do I categorize that? Because if, if they truly were saved, then they truly still are saved. Um, but you know, that, so then you, so you have that, and then you have mm-hmm. in first John where he says, hey, if they apart, if they depart from us, they were never actually a part of us. Um, so you have to hold those two things together in your mind and it's hard because we can't judge the heart of of humanity. What we what we are called to do is to observe fruit or the lack thereof in the lives of people. Um, so I I was talking with a church member the other day and um, I was just walking him through like some different approaches I've had I've, I've seen people use and I had one one pastor say he will just take it at face value. If someone tells them that he's a Christian, he will hold them to the standards of Christians. And I thought that was interesting. But then you have this other approach of people who leave the church. Do we and, and depart from the faith, or it looks like they depart from the faith. How do we what standard do we hold them to? Do we still hold them to the standards of being a Christian? Or do we hold them to a standard of they're unbelievers. They're they're not a part of us anymore. So how do I go about loving those people? And that's a really difficult thing to to, to think about, um, especially whenever they have willfully left and they've not been excommunicated or kicked out, um, been kicked out of a, a local church and handed over to Satan so that they might repent and be restored back mm-hmm. into the church family. Those are two different situations where we've got, you know, clean, clear-cut information on how to approach people who, who are being removed, who have been kicked out of Eden, for lack of a better phrase, um, to be restored back into Eden. And so the only thing I know to do uh, when people depart from the church is, is to love them by trying to keep communication going with them, um, by praying, for, praying for, for God to bring them back. Because I have friends who I saw fruit in, in their lives um, for years at a time, and then they go through some difficult experiences and they leave the church and at the very least just have no affection for Jesus. Um, I don't know if they're just backslidden and God is wooing them back currently or if they never actually believed in Jesus. My motivation should be the same in either case. I want them to be reconciled to God. I want to share the gospel with them constantly and consistently because if they're a believer who's backslidden, they need to hear the gospel. Yeah, yeah. If they never were saved and they've left the church community, they need to hear the gospel. Yeah. They both need to be reconciled to God. And so... I have to to love them, and there's one person in my mind who has departed from the faith that I have not loved well, um, and and pursuing them, and and running after them to snatch them from the fire. Um, So, like, this is a deeply convicting truth for me, when we were walking through uh, the the Timothy passage um, and the Jude passage, because I feel like I have let people slip into the fire. I've not actively pursued them to try to rescue them. So, this is a, yeah, Personal one that's caused me a lot of uh, sleepless nights and tears, um, because I felt like I did my best, but then as I've looked back on it, I'm like, I don't know if I actually did my best. I don't, you know, don't have like the Paul who, you know, saying I would be accursed so that my kinsmen mm. would be saved. Mm. And so that's that's how I think about this topic is I, I should, I, I want to care about their salvation and their their sanctification so much that I could get to the point to say. God I would have you damn me if you would save this person. Hmm. Um and I I I don't have that mentality or posture at all times.
1: We can like we can definitely be sure that the one thing that having a theology of eternal security does not produce in people the one thing it is sure to not produce in people is a cavalier attitude towards whether or not people are saved. Mm-hmm. It does not produce a cavalier sort of well you know if You know, if God doesn't elect him, then God doesn't elect him. So I'm just going to sit here and just kick my feet up and eat these Doritos. Like It it doesn't have that effect on Paul. Mm -hmm. Paul is willing to endure anything for the sake of the elect. Jude wants to stick his hand into the fire to snatch people out Mm -hmm. of it. And I think that's why John is uniquely writing to a church that is experiencing a lot of this churches. These churches in, in Asia Minor. It seems like a lot of these church members are departing from the faith and returning to Judaism. And everybody that John's writing to seems to be looking at John with puppy dog eyes wondering, what do we do and what's going on? They seem to be looking at John like saying, like, do, are we next? And John says, and you quoted this already, but this is First John chapter 2. He says, hey, listen, this is why it's happening. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Mm-hmm. So, so John almost sees this as a grace. Mm-hmm. Their, their departure from us is a grace to us because it, it makes it plain to us, that they don't know Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that should increase our zeal to plead with them, beg with them, pray for them, sit with them, weep with them, preach the gospel for them in a really radical way. It, it It's a grace because it, it means that, it means that they can't hide in the church with Christian camouflage on mm-hmm. without you knowing it. Yeah, There's a plainness that happens in John's imagination when this happens.
0: Yeah, Keller talks about, you know, being inoculated to the gospel where you're in this church culture, you're swimming around it so much that the church community itself and the individuals in there think they've got enough of the gospel to make them good, to make them right. And, right. Yeah, John is saying this is it's good that we know these things now, because we know how to we know how to address them. We're not just gonna assume that they are of Christ we know now explicitly that they are not of Christ. They have departed um, from this church community. and So if they departed, they were never a part of us before. So now we actually know the truth. And that helps us know how to love them. That helps us know how to love each other well. Um, So it is a grace. I don't think mm-hmm. people... It's it's harder to look at that and say that's gracious, but it actually is. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, he talks about if if you hate your brother then the love of god the light of god the word of god it's not in you and you're in the darkness you're stumbling around not knowing up from down and uh and so for those who are in the light to be able to see those who are in the darkness still that helps us know how to pursue them that helps us know how to to love them and to minister to them
1: yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. so we're we're coming up we're creeping up on an hour right here but let, let's kind of end with this dude if if a church member came up to you and said, "Hey man, I don't know whether or not I'm saved," mm-hmm. h- like how would you how would you pastor them? How would you shepherd them?
0: Yeah, I would ask them why they believe or feel that particular way. Um, for a variety of reasons, I think some people can. We've touched on this already, but if, if a church member says, "Hey, I don't think I'm saved," um, I would say, "Why do you why do you think that?" Because <clears throat> it could be because they they're an unrepentant sin currently, and the Satan is using that as a way to condemn them and to tell them that you're not saved because you keep doing these silly things over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So if that was the response for them, I would say, "Hey, what we just looked at last Sunday as a church, you're gonna, you will continue to sin, but you have an advocate." you, you, God, if you confess your sins, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. That the sheer knowledge that you need to confess these sins, that you know that something's not right in your life right now, that's not evidence that you are not a believer. That's evidence that you are a believer and God is working in you and he's prompting you by his Holy Spirit to work out your salvation. Um, so that's how I would respond to that. Um, I, I would all, like through conversation want to see if there's some sort of mental illness that is plaguing this person yeah um, yeah totally because I, like we talked about at the beginning like that that's a real issue and it seems to be um, a more prevalent issue in our society um, today and especially during this pandemic man I'm sure there's the amount of Christians who have thought that they're not Christians is probably got to be tenfold mm-hmm. as a result of being isolated from humanity and from the church um, so I, I would love them and do whatever I need to do to get them in counseling or therapy or point them to doctors to get them on medicine so that their, their mind that's waging war against them doesn't condemn them. And they believe those lies of condemnation. Um, and then other people, I I think there are people in our church who are disconnected from community right now. Um, whether it was because of the lockdown or they're using the lockdown to cover up their um, mm. lack of engagement in community. Mm-hmm. And so I would just ask, Hey, what is your, what are your relationships like in Frontier Church? What are your, what is your relationship towards the church and to Jesus right now? Um, because I think that's, that can be very indicative uh, and point to you disbelieving your, um, your, your salvation. And so, I would ask them those questions and then like we, you and I were reading through Hebrews 10 and we're getting our minds freaking blown over this beautiful text. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: That's sweet dude.
0: Um, so I, I would run to this text and because the author of Hebrews is writing to a people who are being persecuted and who are suffering and probably were wondering why are all these bad things happening to me? Why, you know, why can't we just have peace? Why does the government have to put their, their boot on our neck? Um is this because I'm not a Christian? Is this because I'm not following Jesus? All these people are leaving the church. Maybe that's because this Jesus isn't real, or maybe I'm going to be the next person to depart from the faith. And the author of Hebrews said, starting in verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Mm -hmm. Therefore, do not grow weary Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But here's what he says in verse 39, but we, but you are not one of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls Mm. i think that's just a good word for anyone who follows jesus Um, so for members of frontier church who follow jesus and who are doubting their salvation i would quote that to you and say you're not one of those people god is going to see you through this and we are going to we're going to care about your salvation we're going to keep you from falling Mm -hmm. into the fire we're going to work on this on your salvation as a community project because that's what god has called us to do
1: Yeah, that's my answer too, honestly. Like, it makes me think about, this is a silly metaphor, but it makes sense in the the little universe that Koldike lives in. Um, But I, I remember there were several conversations I had with my dad in high school when I was cutting more weight than I should have during the wrestling season. You know, it's, middle of winter I'm sucking in weight I'm already a pretty skinny guy I'm not seeing the sun because I'm lifting weights early in the morning and getting back late after practices cutting weight and I just remember a couple serious conversations where I was like dad I don't think I'm going to make it
0: Hmm.
1: whatever you think about cutting the weight take that off the table that's not what this (laughs) is about but I would be like I don't think I'm going to make it and he just really simply as a dad he would say you're going to make it Hmm. you're going to get through this you're tougher than this You're mentally tough. You're going to weigh in, and you're going to do great. When we're certain that somebody is a follower of Jesus, we can speak with that type of declarative gospel language, which is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. You are not one of those who is going to depart. You have fruit. You have Mm. faith. You're going to make it to the end. God is going to persevere you. People who say things like, man, I'm really worried about whether or not I'm really saved— people who aren't saved don't give a rip about that Mm -hmm. they don't man and so the fact like you said the fact that you're worried about your salvation should actually give you greater confidence that god is working in you and that that's a fruit of your salvation yes it's like the old like uh luther story that i think i've told from the pulpit before but it's when it's called when martin luther defeated the devil with his own sword and it's a story about the the devil coming up to luther and saying, hey you're such a great sinner, God could never save you. And Luther says, oh, that's a great comfort to me because God died to save sinners. <laughs> so the fact that, you know, the enemy called Luther a sinner was great comfort to Luther because that's the type of people who God saves. And thus, as the, as the story goes, and thus Martin Luther cut the devil's head off with his own sword. You anything else you want to say about the topic?
0: Yeah, I... I... Um the Satan whenever he accuses you he is a prosecutor with no case any longer. Yeah, dude, Jesus is your advocate uh, and he has given you his account of righteousness. And so in the divine courtroom where God the Father is sitting on the bench, Jesus hurls out the accusations of of the Satan and says, "No, no, no that's not true anymore." I've given my righteousness to this person. I've given my righteousness to this man and to this woman. And I've, I've filled them with my spirit. So you have no case. So you need to take your, put your paperwork back in your briefcase and get out of here. And so take comfort in knowing that Jesus is your advocate. Not that, just, not that he was just your advocate on the cross, but right here, right now, whatever time you're listening to this thing, Jesus is advocating for you. He is defeating the works of the devil. And he will see you through He's not going to let you slip out of his hands. You are his sheep and he is your shepherd. If you are, and if that is true, then you know his voice and he knows you and he's not going to let you fall off the side of a cliff. He's not going to let a wolf come in and snatch you in the middle of the night. That's right. He's going to get that shepherd's crook and crack that wolf over the head. That's he's, right. Dude. He's not going to let you, he's not going to let you be lost from him.
1: Sweet. I love it. Let's end right there. Uh, Church, we love you guys. Obviously, you know this, so I don't need to say this, but we're still going to say it. If this topic inflames any, any, um, any doubt in you or any big questions for you or if it inflames any troubles for you, you know this, but reach out to us and we'd love to pastor you and shepherd through this because we know that although it seems clear in the scriptures, it feels complex and nuanced in our emotional lives. So, Church, we love you guys. We're for you guys. If you have legitimate faith in Jesus, God will persevere you to the end. And we hope that's a a great joy to you. And we hope that this this podcast helps you worship local this Sunday at a church that's going to faithfully remind you of the gospel week in and week out.